those things really uh, climaxed in 1997 when um, a friend of mine, I wouldn't describe him as a good friend, but um, someone I knew for many, many years, um, Malik Jones was killed by East Haven police. This was 1997, so I would have been a sophomore at Howard um, and coming home for the summer um, in the wake of Malik's death, trying to understand what happened um, to this person that I knew. Um, I did not know Malik to be someone who was violent um, or, you know, someone who would, who I could imagine doing anything to provoke the police to kill him. Um, and also just really frustrated following the story um, about the lack of justice, the lack of answers to why he was killed. Um, he was killed after a high-speed chase um, where the cops from the neighboring town, East Haven, which we all knew to be, you know, Connecticut's version of a sundown town, the place you drove carefully through if you were passing through at a certain time or in a certain car or a certain color. Um, so these police officers violated city lines and um, chased Malik's vehicle across city lines into New Haven. I think they actually ended up on the highway um, before he pulled over into a parking lot and they surrounded him. Um, and he was in his car, in his vehicle when he was shot to death. Um, it's hard to even talk about that now. And honestly, a memory that I thought I had, um, maybe not had any peace around, but something I haven't actually sat to think about in a while and just really think about how that affected me. Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted. We'll keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world where communities of color thrive. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way home girl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a Black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. Hey, y'all. This is Takima. So on this episode, I wanted to use this space to introduce myself. I describe myself as an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a mother, and a social justice strategist. But I'm also a sister, a fiance, a good girlfriend, a New Orleanian uh, by way of New England. And I'm also a little nervous about uh, recording my first solo show. But anyway, for those of you who... Don't catch the accent. I am specifically from New Haven, Connecticut. I was born and raised there. I left Connecticut in 94 uh, to attend Howard University and then completed some postgraduate studies after that. 
you know, what I like to call a bougetto, well-rounded background. You know, I've experienced some of, you know, the finest academic environments. And, you know, my parents sent me to private school for many years. And then I'm still an around the way girl. So five words that would describe me. I think the first word that would describe me is passionate. Um, I think most folks would agree. And that's probably something to tell that you can probably tell already. But I am. I'm passionate about the things that engage me, um, the things that, you know, I find interesting, the people I love hard, go hard for the people and the things I believe in. Um, Another word that would describe me, I think, is creative. Um, I think I'm an artist at heart. I trained as a professional curator and am passionate about the arts, uh, particularly the way in which, which art ignites imagination and how important it is that we have access to our imagination if we are going to create the lives we want. I think the other word that would describe me is powerful. Um, I think those folks who know me know that I've tried um, as I've created my life to really tap into my own power. And at this point in my life, I pretty much believe I can create or manifest anything I set my mind to. And I think that's the other thing is um, I try to be someone who is self-reflective and really think about who I am, And in that process, really have learned how to appreciate all of who I am, that well-rounded, round-the-way girl who has also, um, you know, been out into the world and seen some other things. So um, that's who I am. All right. So in terms of my family, I'm currently engaged. Um, This will be my second marriage. I have two amazing little boys who you will hear so much about on this journey. Uh, Kingston Toussaint and August Kamau. Um, Kingston is nine years old and August is six. And yeah, that's my family. We have a blended family, a co-parent with an amazing human being. Um, And we're figuring this thing out. So that's my family life. And, you know, I think as I think about what my journey has been as a Black woman in America, I know loving and creating a loving Black family um, is a big part of how I express the fullness of who I am. All right. So a couple of other things about me um, that you might not know. I am the daughter of a teacher and a fireman, but also my dad was a cowboy. So fun fact. Um, Again, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. I've lived in a few cities. I lived in Washington, D.C. while I was attending Howard University. I lived in New York City, um, which really was my second home as I grew up. Um, Described myself growing up on the Metro North because much of my family lived in New York, my mom's side of the family. And now I currently live in New Orleans. Part-time, I live in Jamaica. Um, My fiance is Jamaican. And we have a home in Kingston. So that is our life. So what's been the most rewarding about my career path? I think what's the most rewarding thing about my career path is that I am true to myself and that I've pursued a career path that has also developed me as a human being. 
the people that have invested in me, have mentored with me, have grown alongside me. I work with people I love and care about, you know, whether again, they have grown me up in this work or they are my peers in this work or who I am now mentoring. I am grateful for doing work where the people I work alongside of care about the work, care about me as a human being and are committed to growing you know, growing through the messiness of life as we all get better and evolve. The other really rewarding things, of course, are practical things like seeing policies change or um, to see folks who have been doing work win the exonerations that we experience at the Innocence Project. Those are always, you know, amazing moments. So, you know, there's a lot of reward in the work. And thank God for it because it is hard sometimes. It's hard for long stretches of time. And I think we're entering a time where the work is going to be very challenging. And so, so important to hold on to the moments of joy and to really cultivate joy. So the work is rewarding. And I think I am thankful most for the people I get to work alongside of. Welcome back, warriors. By now, you know, we have a few rules on the show. Number one, we keep it real. Number two, you've got to be an active listener. There is no progress without the work. So today we put in the work. Text the phrase change, C-H-A-N-G-E to 504-676-5393. That's my personal number. And I'm going to be waiting to text you back. Again, the number is... 504-676-5393. I'll respond with a link to the website where you can get more information on today's topic and about what you can do to move the movement. So what was the turning point in my life that uh, made me commit to social justice? So first of all, I think I kind of came out like this, um, partly because I grew up in a family that was engaged in the political process. My grandmother was a city council person and definitely broke many barriers during her life. I also was really drawn to it as a young person. I was always really interested in, you know, conversations about civil rights and fairness and understanding those things. I remember the first time I read Henry Thoreau and went home and staged my first civil disobedience with my parents. So I think I've always had a bit of a a strong sense of fairness, which followed me throughout life. It was as a young person in, in New Haven where I really got activated, got, and got engaged in community organizing. Um, and this is what the height of gang violence in New Haven um, and interventions to really curb the violence around the city led by Black leadership. So I was involved as a young person in those activities. And then when I went to Howard University to study African-American studies, I really had a chance to, you know, study those who had come before me, study the movement. I majored, uh, dual majored in African-American studies and political science And so not only was able to understand our history, but then also really connect that to the political process. While at Howard, I interned on the Hill and worked for 
some interesting figures like Vernon Jordan um, during the Monica Lewinsky trial. So many stories about uh, trying to squeeze myself through paparazzi leaving work and really being in that office while all of that history was happening. So I have always been someone who was drawn to it, you know, also attending private school as a young person and understanding intimately what it was like to be discriminated against, to really be, you know, one or a few, to have to try and manage, you know, uh, white privilege uh, without the language or the analysis to explain it. Um, and then return from a very, very privileged space to, you know, my working class neighborhood and to notice the contrast. So all of those things really uh, climaxed in 1997 when a friend of mine, I wouldn't describe him as a good friend, but um, someone I knew for many, many years, um, Malik Jones was killed by East Haven police. This was 1997, so I would have been a sophomore at Howard um, and coming home for the summer uh, in the wake of Malik's death, trying to understand what happened to this person that I knew. I did not know Malik to be someone who was violent or, you know, someone who would, who I could imagine doing anything to provoke the police to kill him. And also just really frustrated following the story about the lack of justice, the lack of answers to why he was killed. He was killed after a high-speed chase where the cops from the neighboring town, East Haven, which we all knew to be, you know, Connecticut's version of a sundown town, the place you drove carefully through if you were passing through at a certain time or in a certain car or a certain color, um, so these police officers violated city lines and chased Malik's vehicle across city lines into New Haven. I think they actually ended up on the highway before he pulled over into a parking lot and they surrounded him. Um, and he was in his car, in his vehicle when he was shot to death. Um, it's hard to even talk about that now. And honestly, a memory that I thought I had, maybe not had any peace around, but something I haven't actually sat to think about in a while and just really think about how that affected me as a young person. I remember organizing some conversations and some people around what happened. And, and so that was really like the first time I put it all together. And really wanted to use my power as a person to, to pull my community together and to demand justice. That set me on the journey that has brought me here to, to record this today. So what motivates me to do this work? You know, the story I told about Malik was definitely one of the first moments um, I was politicized and felt like I needed to do something in response to injustice. But um, what continues to motivate me fundamentally is a deep belief in the humanity and brilliance of Black people. You know, I believe that there is nothing inherently wrong or inherently inferior in 
believing that deeply, it's so hard to reconcile who I know Black people to be with the outcomes we see in our lives. And because I love us, it is so hard for me to see us live lives where we are not able to fully express ourselves or our humanity or our brilliance. It really is a shame, you know, that the world does not get to see our full brilliance. And it's really a tragedy. And I think that's the thing that motivates me more than anything is wanting to see the beauty and brilliance of Blackness fully expressed, not only for ourselves, but for what I know we possess to to offer the world. All right. So the hardest part of the work, the hardest part of the work is the challenge and the opportunity in it. I think it is to master patience. And I'm not talking about the type of patience that um, is willing to wait generations for change. I'm talking about the patience that understands that this work begins first in myself as a continual process of developing myself the patience of learning how to work effectively with others and a patience that's not connected to ego because ultimately it's not about me or my timeline. So what I've seen in this work is that those flashpoints, those moments where we see change, you know, igniting, um, where we see you know, these moments where humanity is sort of leapfrogging into a new era. I think when you do this work every day, um, whether it be in the policy space, the advocacy space, the community organizing space, the service space, you know, it is hard to be patient for the part of it that you can't control. So most, so many things need to line up. And those of us who are in this work have to learn the patience to wait for the alignment. And some of that is, is not in our control. So I think the hardest part of the work is to learn to be patient in the face of such injustice, um, but also not too patient that we become complacent and really trying to be aware of our role and our lane and building our relationships and our networks so we can play our part in the interim and in those very specific moments, like the one um, we are currently in as I record this. So yeah, I think the hardest part is patience. And patience with other people too, because um, it is hard to journey to do, you can't do this work by yourself. And it's hard when, um, you know, not everyone is standing beside you. So patience is probably the virtue I struggle the most with and the thing that I find hardest about doing justice work. So speaking of the people I get to work alongside of, I'm so excited to um, host this platform and to bring to you the folks who I admire, those folks who are there when I look to my left, to my right, when I see who's coming behind me, and of course, to those whose shoulders I stand on top of. So I am excited to bring you every week 
the most prolific and visionary social justice leaders of our time, the folks who are toiling it out every day on the front lines. So we're going to talk about things like incarceration. We're going to talk more about housing inequity. We're going to talk about health inequity. We're going to talk about birth equity. We're going to talk about Black joy and radical self-care. We're going to talk with artists about what it means to imagine the future we want our children to inherit. So every week, we're going to have conversations, and I want you to let me know what you want to uh, ask these folks, who you're interested in hearing from, and uh, we're going to bring this to you every week. And I'm really excited to get the conversation going. And it's going to be a two-way street. So you are going to participate. And as I've said, this is one of those shows where the only thing we're asking of you is to participate. And we promise to uh, be responsive and bring you exciting content every week. So Converge is a consulting firm. We're a social justice consulting firm. We are based in New Orleans, but we work nationally. The mission of Converge is something that means a lot to me. Our mission, our purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world where communities of color thrive. I founded Converge in 2016, and um, since then, uh, Converge has led a number of projects that, uh, with a number of partners who we're going to be featuring on this show. Uh, We've done work on everything from reproductive justice to criminal legal reform. We've done work in progressive philanthropy to really help them build coalitions to work together more effectively and fund work on the grounds more expeditiously and more strategically. We have created a number of strategy documents. We do training in diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and have written a number of reports. So this platform will give you an opportunity to see behind the scenes what we do at Converge and to hear from some of our partners like the folks at the ACLU or the American Medical Association, folks who we've worked with locally like Healthy Golf doing amazing work in environmental rights and justice and hear about some amazing work we're doing with the Louisiana Coalition for Reproductive Freedom uh, gearing up for a pretty amazing and important uh, campaign this fall to ensure women in Louisiana continue to have access to safe abortions. So we will be sharing live and um, in real time some of the work that we're doing and uh, sharing that work through the voices of our partners. All right, y'all. So this podcast is called Converge for Change, the Business of Social Justice. So what does that mean? So on this show, what we're going to do is we're going to bring every week a leader, a social justice leader who is doing this work every day on the front lines to break down to you the various issues um, in our community. So we're going to talk about things like incarceration. We're going to talk about housing inequality. We're going to have conversations about health inequities and birth equity. We're going to talk about work that is being done to really think about what does it take to defund the police, right? Beyond a hashtag, how does that really happen? We're going to have conversations about what progressive DAs look like and break down the criminal justice system. We're going to talk about how the criminal justice system is funded. We're going to talk about philanthropy, 
and really help you understand um, what philanthropy is is thinking about, um, the type of work that they are looking to support and fund, and some of the distinctions that philanthropy makes about what to fund and not to fund. So demystifying that process. So when we say the business of social justice, we're not only talking about you know, the business of running a nonprofit or the business of fundraising for an organization, but really breaking down how this thing works and how we can actualize and operationalize strategies to move our movement forward. I can't believe that's the end of the first solo show. So I appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in today to get to know me a little bit better. My hope is that you're walking away with a new understanding of the business of social justice and what we're going to be doing here on the podcast. Um, But I also hope you got a chance to know me a little bit better. And I look forward through this process to getting to know you. So I am thrilled to be bringing you my first guest next week, Will Snowden from the Vera Institute. We are going to be discussing race, COVID, incarceration, and the uprising, the first of a three-part series on the criminal legal system. So we um, are excited to see you back here soon, and we look forward to hosting Will. following me yet? How else will you be the first to know what's next? You can find all of my podcast episodes on my website, www.convergeforchange.com backslash podcast. Follow me on social media, on Facebook at Converge for Change, on Instagram at I am Takima and at Converge for Change. Be sure to add me to your podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitch. You can also catch the show live on WBOK1230.com, or if you're in New Orleans, adjust your radio to WBOK1230 AM every Saturday.